Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, this show is a dutiful member of the Agora Podcast Network. Here's a show you might enjoy as well. This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra. In this podcast, we will do exactly what the name of the podcast suggests. We will go beyond the big screen. By which I mean, we will search for the real background, context, and true story behind movies. We will interview guest experts and authors to find out what the real story is that behind our favorite books, films, television shows, genres, and much more. I will see you next time beyond the big screen. Hello, everyone. If you followed me on social media at all, you will know that the last few months have been... challenging. I have something like four books I've been trying to read before the next real episode, so I'd made plans to buy myself some time. But then in mid-December, the child was at home for a week because of a COVID scare at school, then my wife had to help a good friend of ours deal with the post-surgery from hell, as all the nurses at the local hospital seem to have collectively lost their minds as a result of the demands being put on them by the Omicron outbreak. Um, not necessarily their fault. The hospitals hit 100% occupancy just after this friend's surgery, so uh, I'm just glad I was able to go in and help out, but that left me single parenting uh, even more than normal. Then the holidays happened, so that's like a week and a half gone. Uh, Then we had a week of normal life at the beginning of January, and then the child actually got COVID. She had symptoms for a day and a half, and then spent the entire next ten days bouncing off the walls. We got her back to school last week, but of course by that time, we were sick. Then she shredded one of my sources. So long story short, everyone is fine, and we are basically putting ourselves back together, but I have been rather on edge and really only got through one of the books so far. So, um, happily, my friend David Montgomery of the Siecla podcast was able to record this crossover episode with me, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, But before we get to that, um, I thought you deserved this explanation as to what's been up. Um... The next episode will be arriving approximately when it's ready, which shouldn't be too much longer, but look, it's not going to be this month. I will try to make it up to you all, but in the meantime, thanks so much to the patrons and donors who have stuck with me in this little dry spell. I assure you, I have absolutely 100% been working on the show this whole time, as I've been able. It's just, it's been a lot. And I haven't been doing so well, to be honest. 
that should be changing now. So thank you again for all your support and for listening and for your patience. In particular, I have three donors today that I would like to thank for this episode. Uh, as was often the case during breaks like this, I got a lot of patrons too, but I'm just going to break it up if that's okay with everybody. In any case, we have three donors today who are worthy of honor and praise. First up, we have Gabriel, whose uh, bountiful services to the realm have earned him the new sobriquet Sir Gabriel, Whipper of the Royal Mashed Potatoes. Up next, we have Mark, who shall be known from henceforward as Viscount Mark, quartermaster of the court's paper towels, toilet paper, napkins, and sundry other paper goods, including tissues, but not including construction paper. And finally, we have the very worthy Basil, who shall be known from henceforward by his own request as the most noble Sir Basil, Duke of Pocket Aces, Baron of Bicycle Felts, Protector of Blind Bets. Thank you very, very much to Mark, Gabriel, and Basil. Uh, Basil is particularly interesting because uh, he donated and sent me books, which is an interesting little transition here, um, because a bunch of you sent me books, and Amazon doesn't necessarily tell me who sent the book. So I do want to thank everybody, but if you could get in touch and just let me know that you sent me a book and which book you sent, um, that would be great. And then I'll give you your snarky regnal name and everything. Um, sorry about the confusion and everything. It is what it is. Just, this is typical of my life. Anyway, um, two last notes before we start. First, you can probably tell that my normal podcast mic has, after many years of dutiful service, finally given up the ghost. I'm reduced to using my webcam mic for now, and it's not as good. Fear not, a new mic is on the way, but unfortunately I discovered this situation as I sat down to record with David. So uh, there really wasn't anything we could do. It had already been weeks of trying to get it scheduled and everything. So uh, apologies for the audio quality in this episode uh, on my end. David, of course, sounds clear as a bell. Um, uh, second note. I make a bit of a snafu early in the episode. Suffice it to say that whenever I say Henry II in this episode, what I meant to say is Henry I. Uh, just a mistake. Hopefully you can forgive me, especially given everything that's been going on. And with that, let us begin. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, notoriously the host of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. My show aims to examine the early modern period of European history from the lens of religious conflict. And I'm on episode 83 of the introduction. With me today is David Montgomery, widely renowned as the host of the Siècle, a show that covers the years from 1814 to 1914 in French history, a period of endless fascination. David, welcome. Ben, welcome to the Siècle. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Today we are going to be discussing a topic that is a perennial favorite of kids of all ages, the horrible skin condition known as scrofula. David and I happened to be discussing scrofula on a Discord one pleasant fall evening, 
as you do, and we realized that we were both reading up on it for our various shows. Obviously, this meant that we absolutely had to do a crossover episode to discuss our favorite medieval skin condition specifically and nothing else. And so here we are. David, let me kick us off by asking, what is a scrofula? So first of all, scrofula is something you should absolutely not Google. Just just take our word on this one. Don't type scrofula into Google. You will not like the pictures that come back up. So more technically, scrofula is the name for a disease that's caused by the tuberculosis bacteria. Uh, it's disfiguring, not usually fatal. Uh, it leads to swollen lymph nodes, skin lesions, affects the neck and the face. Uh, it creates a horrifying appearance and, uh, if some sources are believed, uh, a terrible smell. Always great. Yeah. Scrofula is also noted for being a disease that features flare-ups and remissions. It's not constant. It, it comes and goes. Uh, this is important because the symptoms can just sometimes just go away for a while. And this ties into the most interesting fact about scrofula. For centuries during the Middle Ages, it was widely believed that there was only one surefire cure for scrofula, the touch of a king. Ben, the medieval and early modern period is, is your era of specialty. How did this connection between the royal touch and scrofula get started? Honestly, we don't really know. As with many things in this period, it's sort of obscure, and there's a bunch of different reasons for that. Let me let me start us off with the early evidence. And I should say, actually, that the royal touch took place in only two places in Europe. It was specific to France and England. Uh, a couple people tried to do it in other places, and it never caught on. So we have this interesting phenomenon of the royal touch only happening uh, in France and England, two monarchies that you will note have a long history together, let's say, in the Middle Ages. The only two countries that matter, I should point out. Yeah. <laughs> let's start with the basic evidence we have. Um, and I, I'm going to summarize a lot here, but essentially Philip I, uh, who reigned 1060 to 1108, is the first king we have on record as doing a healing. Now, a, a thing about Philip is that he was a notoriously cynical king um, and sort of power operator in his period. And he's described as losing the ability to heal by Guibert. So we can probably assume that the practice predated him by some length of time. Basically, Guibert is saying, good kings are able to heal people. Philip had it and then lost it because he was such a jerk. <laughs> now, Philip was only the third king in the Capetian line. So um, there's no record of the Carolingians, which is the previous dynasty, touching Scrofula. And if you go much before that, you don't really have France at all. Or so, evidence. <laughs> yeah, or uh, written evidence at all. So the practice can probably be dated to sometime between 987 and 1060. That said, there is plenty of evidence of folk stories of earlier monarchs doing healings of more general kinds, particularly holy kings in the Carolingian and Merovingian dynasties uh, were supposedly able to heal sick people by touching them or doing things. And then you can get back into like real folk stories in terms of the people who you know came in before Christianity, who had all sorts of powers and connections to the divine. So particularly after the Merovingians converted to Christianity, you got a lot of these stories just kind of banging around. Okay, in terms of the English side, the rite in England started after it happened in France. That's pretty clear. And so it's undoubtedly an imitation of the French rite. That said, just because a king says something is real doesn't mean everyone's going to agree. 
The first king in England for whom we have documentary evidence is Henry II, who ruled 1154 to 1189, and who listeners to my show will know is a favorite of mine due to his being a terrible slime ball with no morals who killed his way to the throne. Even since you have a type. Yeah, I do. <laughs> he was also, it's like, I don't like out-and-out evil kings. I like people who are just kind of slimy. <laughs> slimy but like, effective. Yes, yes. And definitely, and that's the flip side of Henry, is he was very effective. He really codified the English common law system as we now understand it. And that's not unrelated to the fact that he was the kind of person who could come into a situation and convince everybody that he was healing them. So he's basically the just the second king of England after its conquest, the second stable one. His older brothers were just involved in a huge scrum, and those were the only kings between him and William the Conqueror. So, you you know, he basically just waltzed into this situation where his father was an avowed usurper and just sort of declared himself king and then just started healing people, or at least writing about it. So we can probably date the start of the right in England to somewhere between the conquest in 1066 to the death of Henry in 1189. And personally, I think Henry is exactly the kind of person to just wake up one day and say, hey, guys, guess what? I can heal the sick. Anyone who disagrees can come join me in a game of defenestration. The fact that he was also a smooth political operator and is described as personally charming while also having a very long reign that he used to consolidate the institutions of the new dynasty probably helped him take the healing rite from a cynical imitation of the French monarchy to something people all over Europe genuinely took seriously. We're going to get to the how in a little bit, but just really quick, there were, was actually some competition in the scrofula healing game. The seventh sons were individuals who were supposedly the seventh male born to the same mother without interruption by a daughter. This very rare turn of events was associated with magical properties, possibly as part of a much older folk belief in sort of northern France, but the origins are completely lost to time. Nonetheless, they came to be seen as itinerant healers generally and scrofula specialists in particular. In England, such individuals were imprisoned by the authorities as obvious frauds since everyone knew only kings could cure scrofula. In France, this competition was tolerated. This may be evidence of similar beliefs coming to be in parallel. Another example, again in France, was the shrine of Saint Marcoul in Corbigny. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing those words right. No one ever really knows. Yeah. <laughs> Wesh, alors, c'est Saint Marcoul de Corbigny. And that shrine is also renowned as a place to go for a cure to scrofula. No one really knows why. The saint's myth, such as it is, has nothing to do with scrofula, and it's fairly bare bones to begin with. Nonetheless, the monarchy tolerated this folk belief and eventually actually incorporated it into their own. So at a certain point, the kings of France, as part of their coronation rituals, started traveling to the shrine and getting the blessing of the saint as part of the various things that they did in becoming kings. So how did this whole thing start, based on what we know? There's more than just cynical self-interest going on here. The power of the king's touch to cure scrofula seems to have been sincerely believed by vast numbers of people, both commoners and elites. Things that we need to mention here are human psychology, notably the placebo effect and what it has to do with medicine. So just to say the, the, the placebo effect is real, it can be very strong. And it's just if you believe something is true, there's a significant portion of the time that it will actually improve the situation. Um, and, you know, debate continues as to why. I keep strongly believing that my podcast is good and uh, hopefully that will help. <laughs> there you go. This just gets to the way that people formed beliefs in general. Medieval people weren't dumb. I mean, I think that's the, the biggest thing to say. 
But so the most basic thing that led people to have this belief is that if you're going into a situation where you think someone is going to be able to heal you and you have a disease that in reality just comes and goes and you get what seems like a magical cure and then it goes away, you're going to attribute that to whatever happened, whether or not that it was a causal effect or not. This is a big problem in general with uh, medicine and determining you know, how things happen. And it's why we don't base modern medicine on anecdote and single points of data. We use these double blind studies with control groups and all that stuff. Um, it's very easy for someone to be confused in situations like this. Um, and it, it's behind a whole lot of folk medical beliefs, some of which are useful and some of which aren't. In this case, I think we can all agree here that aren't is more the correct uh, situation according to modern medicine. Well, let's reserve oh. judgment until the end of the episode. We don't want people just oh, leaving sure, now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> keep, keep guessing. That said, it's easy to see how this would happen. What's interesting is to examine for us in this episode is how that played into concepts of medieval kingship, uh, how that played into wider ideologies of the time, and how people who were in charge used mixtures of their own purely, their own genuinely held beliefs, the genuinely held beliefs of the populace at large, and the power of medieval propaganda, I guess, to change things. And I just think it's worth saying that the medieval kings had access to a lot of people who could write things that were then disseminated out across Europe. And so even though people might have had no personal experience with the king of France because they lived in Spain or Germany or whatever, they would hear through these supposedly reputable sources about healings conducted by the French and English kings. Yeah, that's right, Ben. I encountered in, in my research a, like a 16th century Spaniard who was writing about the stories he'd heard of French kings touching for scrofula at their coronations. Uh, and it was all a little weird to him, and he was sort of credulous and sort of skeptical. Uh, he certainly believed it was possible. He just he hadn't seen anyone for sure get healed. But the fact that someone might have been healed was definitely something that was was possible. On that note, uh, in your most recent episode, you talked about how belief in scrofula and the king's touch was rooted in broader beliefs about what it meant to be king. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Some rulers across history have often portrayed themselves as in some way partly or wholly divine from ancient period up until the, the beginnings of the modern period. European Middle Ages were no exception. Back in the 11th century, there was a fairly widespread conception that a king was a, a person endowed with at least some sort of spiritual quality. Uh, there's a Norman author writing around the year 1100 who argued that a king was, quote, a, a twin person. Quote, the power of the king is the power of God. This power, namely God's by nature and the king's by grace. Hence, the king, too, is God and Christ, but by grace. And whatsoever he does, he does not simply as a man, but as one who has become God and Christ. So you've got this belief that, or at least this propaganda that the, some people close to kings are trying to spread, which I'm sure was, was shared in some degree by a lot of people, that there's some sort of mystical, spiritual, divine quality to kings. I should note that this argument in the 11th century, around the year 1100, this is exactly the time that you mentioned that these first occurrences of touching for scrofula by kings were starting to appear. And I'm not sure if that's a coincidence. Maybe it is. But <laughs> I should also note this, this anonymous Norman author uh, attributed this transformation to a side effect of the king's anointment or consecration. 
it wasn't just holding political power that did it. It was the divine coronation consecration that gave the king this ability, this godlike power. So that was sort of the early medieval period. But by the time you get to the early modern period, uh, this argument about the sort of this divine aspect of kingship has solidified, at least in England and France, into this idea of the king's two bodies. A, a famous book by uh, Ernst Kantorowicz uh, by that name that sort of lays this out, the sort of political theology of the medieval period. Uh, the basic idea is that the king's physical body is mortal. It can die. Obviously, like everyone has seen kings die. No one would argue that kings are actually immortal. But this, the key part is that the king has a second spiritual body that's immortal. And that spiritual body simply passed on to the next king's mortal body when the prior king died. So this idea of the king's two bodies reinforced the idea that there was something mystical or spiritual about kings. And if you buy that, that there is something mystical or spiritual, the idea that the king had a healing hand is pretty plausible. That said, Ben, you were talking about how this, this whole general idea of kings with divine powers pretty quickly became surrounded by a lot of bureaucracy. Of course. Now, anytime you have any kind of act that is deriving power, of course, the bureaucracy gets involved, especially in this area and time. So in both England and France, rituals grew up around the king's touch that became elaborate. Initially, it was all on a first come, first serve basis. Literary evidence describes people taking random opportunities to ask the king for the touch, up to and including when the king passed them on the road. Eventually, as the word of the touch spread far and wide, and as the governments of these incipient monarchies became more formal, this became inconvenient. At the same time, the stories of the king's touch had become an important part of discussions between monarchs and the church about who held legitimacy. This whole thing about the king having spiritual power and immortal significance was sort of important in debates between kings and the papacy. So this became very important to sort of the monarchy's justification for its own existence, arguments about which monarchs were better than other monarchs, and also internal political arguments between the different forces that ruled things in Europe. Obviously, if it was this important, this needed to be regulated and documented and everything. That said, this is also a time period where administrations are pretty scanty, but also uh, when rules of hospitality were taken very seriously. Which is to say, if someone comes and knocks on your door and asks you for help in this time period, you're supposed to, you know, off murder them all in their beds after they get <laughs> drunk. Uh, as the host of the house, there's a, a code of hospitality that you're supposed to follow. And of course, writ large, the king is the host of a very large house called a palace. And if people rock up and start knocking on his door, there's certain codes that he's supposed to follow. And then one final thing to just say is that as uh, time went on and touching for scrofula in particular was seen as the thing, it became important for the kings to be able to hand wave away times when the healing didn't work. So it became very important to be very clear that it was scrofula that the king healed, just scrofula. So when pilgrims arrived to be helped by the king, they would be examined by a court doctor. And if they indeed were considered to have scrofula, just scrofula and not anything else, they would be put up by the court until the next major scheduled healing event. These healing events would happen at major high holiday services and things like that, you know, Easter, Christmas, those kinds of things. Four to six times a year, depending on, you know, which reign you were talking about and when and where and which monarch you were talking to. 
in the meantime, they would be put up in the palace because with the vagaries of travel in the Middle Ages, you never knew when you were going to show up in relation to these big events. So they would be put up in a clean room and given hot meals, which of course had no impact at all on the king's ability to heal for scrofula. You know, giving a bunch of starving peasants hot meals, you know. Anyway, the rituals, as you would expect, developed to make the event of being touched by the king seem more potent. This is probably as much a thing that happened from the king's side, just sort of involuntarily. Like if you just go up to someone and you're, so, you're told that you're supposed to like be healing them by touching them by your dad or whatever, like you can't just go up to them and just like poke them in the face. Like just at, at a basic level, you have to do something religiously. So what they would do is the kings in England would touch the person's forehead, shoulders, and chest, basically making a big sign of the cross over the person. In France, they would do the sign of the cross over each visible sore and then touch them, which is gross. Uh, various prayers were then said, uh, or prayer-like things, and this would always happen in the context of a religious service. By the, the high Middle Ages, this would usually happen right after a mass, so that the king was particularly spiritually pure. Upon being helped in England, all comers, everyone who came to see the king, got a fixed payment from the king as alms. They were not like eye-wateringly large sums, but they were like a good sum of money, like someone giving you a hundred bucks or something. Like, you're not going to say no. In France, those who had traveled a particularly long distance would be given a monetary gift to help them get home. Over time, the coins provided by the kings in England came to be seen as relics in themselves that had their own healing properties, and eventually special coins came to be minted for this purpose. Wearing the coin as a medallion for life was seen as a continuation of the rite, and it would help keep scrofula at bay. And just as a side note, in England, uh, starting with King John, another slime ball, although not effective, they would start blessing rings on Easter Sunday and provide them as cures for epilepsy. Which people said worked, I guess. Kingship, not just scrofula. Not just scrofula, also epilepsy. Two things that go away on their own and can't be confused for each other, but easily can be confused for other things. <laughs> Ultimately, this was probably an outgrowth of the fact that people had started a trade in the medallions that were being minted and handed out. To, Everybody loves a relic. Yeah, everyone likes a relic. And the king suddenly had this way to be handing out... Uh, benefits to people who are coming to see them uh they actually were selling the rings themselves uh, out on the open market <laughs> now as it happens the prov these, these provisions of alms constitute our main evidence for how popular these rites were and the records sort of work in opposite valences in france they didn't give everyone alms but they did record when they gave people money who had traveled a very long distance and where they came from and as a result we know how far people traveled to get to france from all over europe in particular, we know Spanish travelers are well represented, and there's also Italians and Germans, and people from even farther afield. In England, by contrast, as I said, everyone was given a fixed sum, and so we can track the actual numbers of people being touched in the reigns of Edward I, II, and III in particular, because by simply taking the line item in the king's budget that says how many coins were given out to people as alms for be while being touched, and, you know, that's the number of people that showed up. Right. So it's a, a nice little a nice little piece of data. And just unfortunately, after the reign of King Edward III, they changed their accounting system and summed that figure up with the other alms that they were giving out that year. And so we lost our source of data. And it's very frustrating. The very worst thing to happen in the Middle Ages. Yeah, terrible, terrible. So this is the lesson to everybody out there who's in accounting. Be careful what you change.
never change anything. In any case, these payments give us our best evidence of the scale of the healings, as records were kept by the king's bureaucrats of these expenses at various times. These records show an average of 500 healings per year across these three kings' reigns, but there's some wide variation. Edward I was very popular and blessed 1,736 people in one particularly good year. In one particularly bad year, Edward III only blessed 136 people. But at that time, he was busy invading France and may have done unrecorded healings while in Normandy, away from his accountants. Uh, we can say that Edward II, who was not particularly popular, uh, we, he didn't go on any real adventures, and we see some real fluctuations in his uh, healing rates based on how his reign was going. Did it mean more people would come to get healed by him when he was popular or things were going well? Yes. In general, what we can say is given that not a lot of people had the money for travel and that scrofula isn't super common anyway, we can say that the healings were pretty popular in the High Middle Ages and the idea that they were effective definitely traveled around Europe. The reputation of the king had some impact on the number of people who wanted to be healed by him, but so did things like the king's travel itinerary. All, all in all, this was a popular practice that had real belief amongst the population of Europe in general, not just in France and England, although particularly in France and England. David, how did this situation come to an end in the early modern period if it was so popular in the Middle Ages? It's a, it's a complex situation. Uh, th there were intellectual challenges to this divine model of kingship that also go back to the Middle Ages. Uh, Dante in the 14th century had put forth a sort of more humanistic model of kingship which sort of in certain ways undermined this divine model that was the, the intellectual underpinning for the king's touch. The Reformation didn't end the king's touch. Protestant rulers uh, of England kept touching for scrofula, but it did indirectly undermine it. French and Spanish Catholic writers suggested that the heretical English kings had lost their ability to touch for scrofula, you know, standard propaganda against your evil enemy. But uh, one scholar notes that once you accept the idea that some touching for scrofula is fake, it's not that big a leap to the idea that maybe all of it is. <laughs> you know, yet another sort of hole in the wall there. The next big thing that happened in England was a revolution. Catholic King James II was driven into exile. He was replaced by uh, William of Orange, who was Dutch. And in the Netherlands, they didn't touch for scrofula. Uh, and he came in and he had no interest in taking up this weird English tradition. I uh, thought it was superstition, didn't bother doing it. Came back a little bit briefly under Queen Anne in the early 1700s. Uh, it seems like many people still believed in it. People still showed up for Queen Anne even after this had stopped for a while. But then they brought in some German kings, the, the Georges from Hanover, and they just sort of stopped doing it. Uh, again, because touching risk scrofula was not a huge thing in Germany. It is interesting to note as an aside that James and, and his heirs, after being driven into exile, continued to touch for scrofula uh, from their, their exile in France and other places in Europe, long after the kings in England itself had actually stopped doing it. Yeah, and I, I actually read a, a really interesting thing that like people who were actually loyal supporters of the the Hanoverians would sometimes just like they get scrofula and they'd like secretly nip over to the Netherlands to get touched on the on the down low <laughs> like people <laughs> real, still real, still really believe this stuff yeah sure you you politically support the uh house yeah. of Hanover <laughs> but uh, you'll do what it takes to get your cure <laughs> French kings continued to touch for scrofula, especially important as part of the coronation. 
I, I don't know if uh, it had become only the coronations in 18th century French kings, but that certainly is the emphasis of uh, the, the big period for touching for Scrofula was when a new king was crowned. We know that at his coronation in 1774, King Louis XVI touched some 1,200 sufferers uh, who all showed up. But at the same time, over the course of the 18th century in France, you had the Enlightenment, uh, this sort of spread of new ideas, emphasis on rationality as opposed to superstition, attacks on the church. Uh, and this was also sort of chipping away at the intellectual underpinnings of touching for scrofula. And after that had been you know, slowly building for a long time, 1789 comes around with a, a little thing we like to call the French Revolution. Louis XVI gets his head chopped off. And it's really important here. This is not just the execution of the king's physical body, but in a really important sort of philosophical, theological sense, this is the execution of the king's spiritual body, too. If you read what French royalists, uh, committed Catholics, wrote about this execution, about Louis XVI, about monarchy and the decades that followed the French Revolution, there's this real sense that this was not just a political crime where they'd executed a leader, a valid leader, uh, but this was a sin against God. There had been God's anointed leader on earth had been killed and the country needed to repent, to atone. The revolution had sort of worked to transfer this idea of sacredness from the king's divine body, the person of the king, to the secular idea of the nation. Napoleon, of course, eventually crowned himself as emperor, but this was a very different kind of monarchy that he brought in, much more modern, influenced by the Enlightenment ideas. Napoleon didn't touch Rescrofula at his coronation, and uh, he was always much more about the idea of the nation. And of course, he didn't live and reign long enough to have a chance to introduce this idea if he'd wanted to. But 1814 comes around, Napoleon's driven into exile. King Louis XVIII, the younger brother of Louis XVI, comes back, is, is brought on the throne. Learn all about that in the siècle. Louis XVIII never got around to having a formal coronation ceremony. You know, at first he was starting to plan it, and then Napoleon came back for the Hundred Days, and that threw everything up in the air. And he started planning it again, and then one of his nephews got assassinated, and then that threw everything up. And <laughs> by that time, uh, he was uh, incredibly overweight and ill health and couldn't walk. And there's a sense that he just wasn't up for a big public ceremony anymore. <laughs> so he, he died in 1824, never having bothered to be crowned, and therefore it never touched for a scrofula. 1825, uh, Louis' brother Charles uh, had his coronation, became king in 1824, had a coronation ceremony the next year. And Charles did touch for scrofula. Charles was a very traditional, very religious king, wanted to bring back as much of the old ancien regime ritual and tradition that he could. It's, it's worth noting that our sources are pretty clear that even Charles, who wanted to bring back as many of these traditions as he could, apparently had some qualms about touching for scrofula. And he was going back and forth until the last minute. Uh, <laughs> like, do I do it? Do I not do it? People had showed up. They were queuing up outside to get touched for scrofula. At one point, he may have uh, sent instructions, oh, send them home with some money, and then changed <laughs> his mind and said, no, no, bring them in, bring them in. We do know that there were about 120 people, ultimately, who he, he touched. By that time, the, the ritual words was he made the sign of the cross in their forehead and said, uh, God cure you, the king touches you. At some point over the line, the French king stopped touching the sores, which I have to imagine was an improvement <laughs> for everyone. 
that 120 people that Charles touched at his 1825 coronation, that was a tenth the number of what his brother had, which probably reflects a lot of the changes in the popular understanding that may have been dropped by some of the flip-flopping and the, maybe the order to go home yeah. and all that. Who knows like how many would have actually showed up, and obviously the money was still being paid, which was uh, an encouragement. But it's, it's noteworthy that this number was a lot smaller, uh, re- reflecting some of these changes in the beliefs about kingship and all that. Uh, and it's also really interesting that Charles X in May of 1825 was the very last European monarch to ever touch for scrofula. It was it, the, the end of the ritual. And then, of course, in the 1940s, we invented penicillin and antibiotics in general became available. And now... Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and now if you get scrofula, in most cases, uh, I think it's like a six month. So it's not a, it's not a bad, it's not like a, a little thing to d- get rid of scrofula even today, but. Yeah, tuberculosis uh, is rough, uh, the, yeah, the bacteria. <laughs> it is. But a course of antibiotics will usually get rid of it. And then there's surgery if it doesn't. So. Yeah. So Ben, what's your, your take on uh, the king's evil and t- touching for scrofula? It's one of these things where if you learn about just this thing, you understand European monarchy a lot better than you did before. Uh, and that's sort of why Mark Bloch talked about it. And apologies to French speakers. I'm never going to get this name right. I've been told nine different versions of the pronunciation of Mark Bloch, and I'm just going to keep saying it that way at this point. It's close enough. <laughs> Listeners of my show will know Mark Bloch was a, a very prominent historian more so after his death, <laughs> to a certain extent. He he was a young gun historian in France, which is a thing that you can only des- say to describe historians when they're from France. You'd never have a young gun historian from anywhere else. But he, he was key in establishing sort of the Annals School, which we would now call structuralist in the United States. And long story short, he died fighting the Nazis, and that sort of contributed materially to his legend. But he was also a great historian before that. And he was sort of between big, uh, big projects and sort of wanted a little amuse-bouche. And so he started writing a little paper on scrofula, which is something that no one else took seriously at the time. And as sort of happens with historians, uh, this little paper turned into one of his uh, most famous books. Um, because it turned out that, you know, no one else, there was a silly superstition, like this ridiculous thing that people did in, in the old times. But just in this episode, we've touched on, you know, some of the the key rationale for the divine right of kings, some of the major ceremonies that underpinned how they were perceived by the commoners and everything. And if you dig into this a little bit more, and there's some stuff here we didn't quite get a chance to get into, but for my next season, talking about the investiture controversy, the controversy between the papacy and the the monarchs of Europe, having this thing where the, the kings are considered divine in their own right because of their anointment with holy oil, that gets important. <laughs> so that this is one of those weird little things that it's just this little, little topic, uh, this weird little ritual that they did for a good long time. But actually, by by studying it and really coming to understand it, you come to understand an, an awful lot about the society in which it took place. One of the things I was wondering, listening to your explanation, is to what degree do you think the kings believed in their own power here? Uh, you've talked about how there may have been cynicism. This was a w- way they could use to gain power. Uh, but it's also it's, it's dangerous to assume that people in past periods didn't believe what they said they believed. Yeah, I think it really depends on the person and we'll never know for sure. I would say that the 
it's it's interesting that the character of the first two kings, where we have evidence for it, is very clear that they were cynical power players. Philip I and Henry II were not under a lot of illusions about how human nature worked. (laughs) (laughs) That said, it's almost hard for me to believe that they had come up with something so preposterous on their own that there there had to have been some sort of seed there that they built upon. And, you know, and if there's a seed that sort of existed before, it tends to make me think that they, ha- they had to have believed it a little bit at some level. Or at least had advisors who believed in it or were, were making the case to them. With Philip in particular, it's probably something that one or two of his predecessors were considered particularly holy kings and were renowned for healing people. I think it was his father. And whether Philip actually believed it is almost immaterial. People definitely believed his father could heal people. And it wasn't so structured. And it wasn't just Srofula. It was like he was a particularly holy man who touched a guy on the side of the road and the guy started dancing a jig or something along those lines. But, you know, there was, so was, there was this previously existing thing. And Philip, you know, whether or not he believed it, he worked very hard to claim that it was inheritable. And then once he started doing that, I mean, Henry II wasn't that much later. And, you know, it's much easier to copy someone doing that kind of thing when you're getting in on the not too long after the first person tried to pull this. It's like, well, if he's doing it, I can do it too. Henry seems much more like a blatant, (laughs) I'm doing it. And I dare someone to come over here and tell me I'm wrong. And, you know, one of the interesting things is we don't know if anyone in his court or anyone in England even actually believed him. You know, for all we know, they just sent people out and dragged lepers off the street and he touched them and then just wrote about how great it was because Henry was notorious for having a bunch of scribes in his pocket. With with Charles X, uh, I don't know the degree to which he actually believed that he could cure the scrofula, but he certainly knew that the people believed he could and that it was important to them that uh, they get this touch for the king. And that, that, that was important to Charles. He, he th- might have seen this as just a responsibility that he had, uh, a duty. Uh, I mean, he's, he also took this seriously. He believed in that he was God's chosen ruler. And uh, so it's hard to tell how, how actually serious he believed it and how much it was just he knew that other believed it and didn't want to let them down. I know it's pretty clear to me that most of the medieval kings believed it. Um, certainly when you get into the Edwards and everything, it's like it's a big part of the whole thing. They've got no reason at that point, you know, they've got a century between them and when this whole thing started. And at that point, it's just common wisdom. Everyone knows that it works. Obviously, we could talk for another hour about uh, this question I'm about to ask you, but just encourage you to keep this brief for our listeners' sake, if no one else. But what what in other countries, in Germany and Italy and Spain, were there these similar conceptions of the divineness of kings and was royal to healing in some way a thing there, even if scrofula itself wasn't? There were a couple attempts made in Germany by you know one or two of the princes or one or two of the Holy Roman emperors to try and get a scrofula healing thing going, and it did not take. In Spain, too, there was one king, at least, who tried to do a healing thing. That said... It never took off in those places the way it did in France and England, but that isn't to say that there wasn't a feeling that there was a divine right of kings. There very much was, and it just manifested in different ways. It, it was, and it was totally easy for people to believe. People just were like, oh, those, ki-, you know, 
my king is Pedro El Cruel, and he's not one of the ones who can heal people. That doesn't mean he's a bad king. He's my king. But if I want to go get cured for scrofula, I need to just pop over to France. That's where you get the scrofula cure. It's like, it was like there's a pharmacy that just had some different stuff in it over <laughs> in France. It was just a, you know, people were just like, that's a unique part of their bloodline. That's just what it does. I will say that when the French kings tried to take over Italy, they ran into some some serious pushback. And that was probably one of the places where they first started to get the pushback. It sounds like, what are you trying to do? You want to touch me? Or it's like, you know, (laughs) everyone was just like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound like it makes sense at all. (laughs) And and it's it's sort of a mixed bag because you got some people who definitely traveled from Italy to France to be healed. But at the same time, when these, you know, foreign occupier kings rocked in with an army with artillery for the first time and started saying that all those scrofula people should line up and get healed. There was a lot of um, silence, <laughs> I guess. There's, there was a lot of um, incredulity amongst the educated classes in Italy. I find that interesting Italy in particular because medieval Italy had both longstanding traditions of self-rule, Republican rule in a lot of cities. And also, of course, the very real presence of the Pope who had their own claim to right. be the conduit for God on earth. <laughs> uh, I have to imagine that one or both of those may have played a role in the very different reception of the Italians to this idea of royal healing that compared to the French or the uh, English. Along with just the straight up hostility to a foreign occupier. Yeah, sure. <laughs> as you've seen, those, it's much easier to dismiss scrofula happening somewhere else than, than back yeah. home. Or even, I would even say it's much easier to accept that the the French kings over there can cure scrofula, but when those kings rock over here with their army and start telling us all what to do and then are making extravagant claims about healing people by touching them, it's a lot easier to find your skepticism yeah. when you're already, like, loading your gun. <laughs> so that that's a particularly interesting case. And it led to a lot of the intellectual, the, the first round of intellectual arguments against, you know, the very early intellectual arguments against uh, the king's touch. With Dante and the people sort of in that generation, because that's around when it was happening, a little bit after. All right, well, Ben, uh, can't say it's been a pleasant topic, but it's been a very pleasant discussion. (laughs) I don't know Uh, what you're talking about. Yeah, thank thank you so much for uh, welcoming me onto your show, coming on to the Siecla. Yes, pleasure. Uh, Ben, why don't you uh, uh, just tell my listeners a little bit about your your show for those who haven't checked it out, and and then I'll tell uh, your listeners about the Siecla. Sounds great. As I sort of said at the top, the, the goal of my show is to talk about the early modern period from the standpoint of the wars of religion that took place between the nailing of the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg and ended with the end of the Thirty Years' War with the Treaty of Westphalia. That said, I am a very strong believer in context, and I am uh, on my sixth year, seventh year of background talking about the Middle Ages and European society in general. And I'm just about to start, as I think I mentioned, I'm about to get into the investiture controversy, which is really, you know, it's the beginning of a three or four year downhill run right into the beginning of the Wars of Reformation. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel now. So uh, that's Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. Yeah, the, the Siecla is, is my podcast. It covers French history from 1814 to 1914. 
at least theoretically, I'm a couple years in and I've made it all the way to 1825. So we're in <laughs> some similar boats here. Uh, you might notice 1814 sort of picks up right after the part of this history that most people know something about, the French Revolution and Napoleon. Uh, I made a very conscious decision to sort of uh, jump right in in the middle of the action uh, rather than uh, getting bogged down in, in prologue. It's a very different uh, approaches for our shows there, but uh, <laughs> it's this hundred year period that I'm covering, Siècle is French for century. Uh, it's fascinating because you sort of start off at the tail end of the early modern period uh, with France still grappling with uh, the legacies from the Ancien Regime, the changes from the Revolution. And by the time you get to the end of it with World War I, you're essentially fully modern, mechanized, uh, industrialized, completely transformed. And it's, it's fascinating to watch modernity be born over the course of this century. I hope to take my listeners on uh, that tour through this birth of modernity through the lens of France, one of the great countries in the world. And I will say that some of my favorite stories in French history happened in that century. So I'm, I've been enjoying it, and I'm looking forward to the rest. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ben. Uh, thank you to all our listeners for joining us. Where can people find your show? The website is Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. But you can just look me up on any podcatcher. They all have me. Google Wittenberg to Westphalia Wars of the Reformation, and you'll find something. The Siecla is at thesiecla.com, and that's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E. Those French words can be tricky to spell. I'm also available on all the podcasting networks. If you can't find it, just go to the website, and there's links to how to subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.